we are going to jump into John chapter 20, uh, verses 19 through 23. We are celebrating Easter. This is the day in which we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Um, and his resurrection is God's stamp of approval upon his crucifixion. His death is the death of sin and the dominions of darkness and this world order. Uh, but it is also, uh, it, it, he didn't stay dead. His death actually ushered in his resurrection. You can't talk about resurrection unless there is first death. And it's not resuscitation that we proclaim when we say that Jesus rose from the dead. Resurrection is different than resuscitation for resurrection is more like metamorphosis. It's new creation. You remember after Jesus rose from the dead, most of the time people did not recognize him until he revealed himself through something that was said, something that was taught, or actually probably just divine illumination to the minds. There was something that reminded them that it was him, but there was also something new and different. And I think this even gives us a picture of resurrection body. This is not resuscitation, this is new creation. And Jesus is the firstborn over a new creation. So I want us to be thinking in terms today of what it means to behold the king. Because I believe that the most important aspect of the Christian life is that we learn how as a community to live with an expectancy to meet with a God who is not dead and buried 2,000 years ago, but a God who is present and active and available. Jesus said, when two or more gather in my name, I am there in the midst of them. I believe there is a unique manifestation of God's presence when God's people gather together. One of the most powerful aspects of, of visiting uh, one of my favorite churches in the world, uh, Holy Trinity Brompton in London, is that every time I have gone into that church building, I have broke down in tears and I don't cry easily. I have often wondered even if I have tear ducts. And my wife is convinced that the only reason I'm a good pastor is because I have no empathy. Um, I don't think that's true. Uh, and when I go to Holy Trinity Brompton, I'm immediately reminded that there is a lot of emotion in there. Uh, and there's ways that we kind of block that emotion. But I think the reason that I break down in tears every time I go in there is because there is something about that place where I just immediately sense God's presence in a really powerful and unique way. And I think that Nikki and Pippa Gumbel have done an amazing job along with the staff to create a sense of expectancy when the people come together that they're gonna meet with God. And I remember like the first time I, I went there and, and was prayed over this overwhelming sense of the king's presence and the peace that came with his presence reminding me that I was known, that I was loved, and that I'm not alone. And I think that this is an, a, a crucial aspect of what it means to be Christian. Jesus said, he said, this is eternal life. It's not, it's not a duration of time that takes place in the future. This is eternal life that they may know you, the living God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so Jesus tells us that the, what sets us apart uh, from the world is that not only are we known by God, a God who pursues sinners in their sin, but we actually have the ability or the capacity as believers to know him and to know that he is here. And I think that what we need to be learning how to, what to do as a, as a church community is how to practice the presence of the king, how to behold him, 
That word behold means to keep, to perceive through sight or apprehension. And I think that that's an important aspect. I think often we get hung up on the idea of not understanding. And so we think that comprehending is the most important aspect of growing in our faith. Comprehension follows apprehension. We often apprehend long before we comprehend. In other words, we become convinced that Jesus is real, that he's present, that he's available long before we understand even what all that means. And our ability to comprehend um, is always going to hit a wall at some point because there is much about God's interaction with a fallen world and fallen humanity and our fallen bodies and minds that will remain mystery. What we need to learn to do is to live by faith. We put so much trust in the systems of this world that have not delivered us from the anxieties that we experience. We need to learn to put trust in the one who is himself the peace that we long for. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2, it says that we need to look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And I think that that's the gaze of the soul. What is, what is faith? Faith is allowing the Holy Spirit to fill you with the adequacy of Jesus. That faith is allowing Christ to be in us, through us, and for us what we cannot be for ourselves. And so this is learning how to, how to begin to exercise the gaze of the soul toward a saving God. It's recognizing his presence, trusting in his presence, and casting yourself dependence upon his presence. I think that Revelation says this beautiful picture of who Jesus is and why we need to focus in on him. It says, and when I saw him in chapter one, it says, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. In other words, we can trust our lives to the one who has conquered death, who is himself the resurrection and the life. And this is why we need to reorganize our lives around Jesus so that we can experience peace in the midst of a restless age. And so I want us to look at this passage in John, for we believe that Jesus, yes, died the death that we deserved. He died carrying the guilt and the shame and the reality of sin. And as I like to define sin, sin is not the little things you do wrong. Sin is a rebellion against God's rule. It's the desire to be your own God. Not only is it a rebellion against God's rule, but it's also a rejection of his grace. God is a God who from Genesis to Revelation continually pursues broken men and women because he is gracious, because it's his nature to love. It's not because we're lovable, it's because God is in his essence holy, agape love, a self-giving love that is poured out on sinful humanity. And Jesus is the fulfillment of God's movement of grace toward us. We are saved not by our good deeds, not by the things that we do, but we are saved by our trusting in what the Son has done for us. And this is why his death and the cross is central to everything we do at Door of Hope. And this is why we say we preach, along with the Apostle Paul, we preach Christ crucified. But keep in mind that we preach Christ crucified 
we're never saying that the resurrection is of less importance. We're just recognizing that the cross is the center of the gospel because his death is what leads to resurrection life. And this is what I call the good death. We are learning what it means to die with him so that we can live in the fullness of his resurrection life. And here we have in this beautiful passage in John chapter 20, the resurrected king appearing to his disciples. And these disciples have lived with Jesus. They have seen the signs and wonders of Jesus. They have heard Jesus' proclamations. But just like us, they are sinful, broken human beings and they are huddled away in a room afraid, afraid for their lives. They are hiding from the religious leaders because Jesus, their Messiah, their, their, their rabbi has been crucified and they can't believe it and they are in despair and they are afraid and Jesus makes his resurrection appearance to them in this moment in John chapter 20 verses 19 through 20. And it begins uh, here, excuse me, 19 through 23, it begins here with beholding the king of peace. Look what it says. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, so the disciples are closed up in this room, the shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Happy. It's a happy baby. Um, <laughs> peace be with you, child, in, in the basement. That's <laughs> where we send all good kids. <laughs> like every good church, where do the kids go? In the basement. <laughs> So this picture, I love this. Jesus appears in the midst of a group of fearful individuals. And in, 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 as he appears, what's the first thing that he says? He stands in the midst of them and he says, peace be with you. And I think that this is the picture that I, I began with. Jesus said, whenever two or more gather in my name, I am there in the midst of them. It speaks of a, of a place of centrality, that Jesus is at the center and I think if we want to experience the presence of Christ and we want to learn how to behold him in our daily lives, and when I speak of beholding, obviously we live by faith, not by sight. I am talking about learning how to develop a sensitivity to that still soft voice that is often competing against the multitude of voices that we allow into our hearts and minds every single day. And so if you wanna know how it is that you can experience the king of peace, you have to learn how to put him at the center of what you do. Because whatever it is that you love, whatever it is that you give your attention to, that is what is going to control how you live. If the center of your existence, it can be good things. It could be your spouse. It could be your children. It could be, it could be your career path. It could be a whole multitude of things. It can even be dark things. It could be a drug addiction. It could be a sex addiction. It could be, it could be anxiety and fear. Whatever it is that captivates your mind, whatever it is that you have set your heart upon, that is what has the central seat of your affections right now. 
And what we need to understand is that how can we behold the king if we do not develop the internal ability to live with him at the center? That Jesus has not left us to our own devices. We don't put our faith in him and then we try to live as we want. No, he puts his spirit within us and our yieldedness to him, the thing that saves us is not just recognizing that he's the son of God, but it is that surrender to his lordship. Whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. That he himself is our salvation. And what he wants to be is the center. He wants us to know him as we are known. And I love this because the moment that he appears in the midst, the thing that follows is peace. And what I love about the peace that comes from Christ, it's not peace. When we think of peace in our current climate, our current culture, we talk about peace uh, as, as a respite from unrest. We think of peace as the eradication of some sort of societal sin. Over this last year, the conversation has been around racism. Over the last year, the conversation has been around political unrest and the right against the left and the left against the right. The, there's the, uh, when they talk about conversations of unrest or the longing for peace, that people say, we would have peace if we would become more socialistic. And other people say, no, we would have peace if we would become more capitalistic. Or people say, we would have peace if we could eradicate poverty and racism. But what we should understand is that all of the broken aspects of human existence and the culture wars and all that's happening flow out of one central issue and that is sin. The greatest problem that faces the church is not political issues or racial tensions. The greatest problem that faces the church is the same problem that's always faced the church is that the human heart is wicked and deceitful above all things and not to be trusted and it manifests in a whole multitude of ways. And this is why we need to keep Jesus at the center of what we do as a church because it's so easy to get caught up in this new, a new fad. We're gonna give all of our attention to this issue and all we're doing is spinning our wheels on the perimeters of the Christian faith when the key to the, the, the solution to these issues rests at the center, getting Jesus back into the center because the peace that he brings is a restfulness in the midst of unrest. Do you think the issues that we face today are new issues? The dilemmas of human existence have always been the same since sin entered the world. Because the moment people become their own gods, they define who's in and who's out. They define what is right and what is wrong. And as long as sinful human people can define what is right and wrong for themselves, which is the essence of our culture in an age of relativism, we shouldn't be surprised that there are so many manifestations of ugliness because we make horrible masters. We are terrible gods. And this is why we need to come to the king of peace because peace in that beautiful Hebrew word shalom, it literally means life at its best under the gracious hand of God. And that's what I think the world wants to see when it comes into the church. When a non-believer steps into this room, and I would assume that there are some in this room right now, my prayer is that what they experience is not a bunch of people pretending to be something we're not, 
but I pray that what they experience is the shalom of God, the peace that comes from knowing the one who is our peace. Because Jesus doesn't utter peace over the disciples as a word, some sort of abstract idea. He is their peace. And what kind of peace is he? Jesus said in John 14, 27, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He says that to them right after he tells them that he's going to have to die for them. And they are deeply troubled. But he said, listen, I have come to give you peace. My peace I give to you. And the peace that he gives is himself. This is why it says in Ephesians chapter two, for he himself is our peace, who has torn down that middle wall of separation. This is why we need to understand when we talk about Jesus and the reconciliation that he has worked out, it isn't this good, humble, gentle son getting between an angry father and rebellious kids. It is Jesus revealing the heart of a gracious father who is consistently moving toward us in our brokenness. And the reconciliation that he has worked out, we are told that we were once separated by death and sin. That's why I like to repeat uh, Robert Ferrer Capone's quote, if humanity could live its way to salvation, it would have a long time ago. The only thing it can do is die its way there, lose its way there. Because Jesus has come to seek and find that which is lost. And if you don't think you're lost, there isn't much he has to offer you. His offer goes out to the sick, to the unwell, to the broken. And what the non-believer needs to experience in Door of Hope is not a bunch of people pretending to be well. What we need to be is a bunch of people that recognize that the only thing that makes a saint a saint is that we're sinners who consistently confess and repent that we're honest about our brokenness and we don't live under the, under the realm of guilt and shame any longer. The power of sin is still at play in the world and we live under two realities, two different time frames. There is new creation, which it says if anyone be in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come, but we still live in a fallen world in a fallen age and that reality is at play in our lives, which means everything we do is mixture. And so what the world needs to see is a radical vulnerability in the church that says we are broken, we are lost without Jesus, and that's why we confess our need for him. Like an AA meeting, my name's Josh, I'm a sinner. My confession of that is what makes me a saint because I recognize that without Christ I can do nothing. And the beauty of the gospel played out, that's when we began to experience peace. It's not peace as the eradication of turmoil, it is a peace that comes in spite of it. It's a peace that when there's riots going on downtown and there's unrest, it's a shalom that believes that none of this has taken Jesus by surprise and that he legitimately loves and cares for the victim and the victimizer, which puts us as Christians in very unique places, is that we don't get to pick sides. We can only be conduits of his love. Calling people to the only place where they can really experience rest. Jesus says, come to me all you who are weary and I will give you rest. What is the thing that wearies us? The thing that wearies me more than anything else is myself. It's not those hard people out there. <laughs> I'm like, I don't need the help of the radical right or Antifa to be troubled because I'm in plenty of trouble for myself. 
I don't, have to, I don't have to say it's their fault that I'm not at rest. I realize that I am plenty capable of creating a serious uh, sense of unrest through my own brokenness, which is why I need Jesus, and it's what gives me the ability to enter into people's lives that have very different views from me with grace. Because I know how broken I am. And if we would remember that we're sinners, we wouldn't be surprised when people sin. But we're so surprised when people act a certain way and we let our, our peace be ripped from us so quickly because we have the wrong idea of what peace is. The only thing that separates a Christian from a non-Christian is not difficulty, it's the way that we deal with the impossibility of life. Because life, let's be honest, it seems to be terminal. <laughs> I mean, the death rate continues to be one per person. You can wear your mask and it might save you today, but you can get hit by a car tomorrow. I just want to be as positive as possible right now and give you as much hope. But, uh, you know, if COVID doesn't kill you, something will. It seems to be kind of a fact of existence. We're so masterful at surrendering life to protect ourselves from unseen death that we don't realize that we're killing ourselves in a whole multitude of new ways. And this is why we need the sanity that comes from experiencing the king of peace who has conquered death. Because his peace flows from his wounds. Notice what he does. He says, peace be with you. And how does he say this peace is now a reality? He says, this peace comes to you through this. It's fascinating that Jesus isn't recognized because, as I said, uh, when we think of... Jesus' resurrection, we often just think it's a resuscitated body, but that's not what it is. That's why it's different from the raising of the dead of Lazarus, because Jesus is altogether new creation. And in that new, he is the prototype of the new heavenly body, which we as believers put our hope that we will one day receive when sin has finally been done away with. The sin reality in which we live in this age of grace when that is done away with and we receive, like Jesus, our new bodies, there will be something utterly different, like a metamorphosis, like a caterpillar to a butterfly. There's nothing about a butterfly that resembles a caterpillar because the metamorphosis is the caterpillar goes into a cocoon, turns into literally a blob of slime that carries within it a memory of what it once was, but it becomes something utterly new. That's why the butterfly has always been a symbol of resurrection. It's a symbol of metamorphosis. But Jesus, even though he is new creation and they don't recognize him, what becomes the evidence that it's him? He carries in his hands and his feet and his side the very wounds that remind us of what it costs God to reconcile us to himself. Because his peace flows from his wounds and we see in his wounds his achievement over sin. It reminds us that he has not only conquered sin, but he's conquered death. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him, as we considered last week in, in Romans 6. It speaks of his complete conquering of the dominions of darkness. Man, I was pretty skeptical of spiritual warfare until I moved to Portland and started dealing with demonic realities that you know, often sounds sensational. I'm thinking of the guy that I came into, our, uh, into the church with 
uh, seemingly possessed and I tried to pray over him and he mocked me. I got embarrassed so I didn't know what to do so I offered him a pizza, pizza and he grabs the box and goes, ah! and like runs down the street with a whole box of pizza. And I'm like, I guess Satan gets the pizza tonight. I was like, <laughs> this is the reality of Portland. The good news is that the gospel has dismantled the powers of darkness. Jesus, we are told in Colossians, is his, he has made a public spectacle of the principalities of darkness. And the beautiful thing about that is that he has won that he is the Lord of all. This is what Luther meant when he said the devil is still the Lord's devil, meaning that nothing overrides the absolute authority and, and, and power of Jesus who is the prince now, the king of this world, the ruler of this age, Jesus says, the devil himself, which we are told the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one, has been defeated by Jesus. He says, he has nothing in me. He has already been judged. And so it is that in showing his wounds, he was saying, the things that separated you, the realities, look at Siri's trying to talk to me while I'm preaching. Inappropriate, Siri. She's like, I'm sorry, I did not understand you. Yeah, is there something else I can't help with? No, there's nothing you can help with, Siri. You are the devil. I thought she would be more helpful with an Irish accent, but I can't tell the difference. It doesn't even sound Irish. It sounds, still sounds kind of English, but still like a robot, which is just creepy. <laughs> I never have had that happen before in a sermon. That's good. The devil. That's what happens. Mock the devil. He makes fun of you. Someone in the universe is laughing at us. That's, that's what I read once. If you want to, do you, have you ever had the sense that someone in the universe is laughing at us? That's the proof of, of spiritual warfare. Not only is Jesus the king of peace, a peace that means that we now have peace with God. We've been reconciled to him. His reconciliation speaks of God's no to sin and his yes to sinners. But it also means that we are to behold the king of love. Look what it says in verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, again, second time, in case they weren't confident in the first statement, peace to you. But now look what he says, I am your peace. And as the father has sent me, I also send you. And the reason I say this, behold the king of love rather than behold the king of mission is because the thing that, promotes movement into a lost and broken world is God's grace. His grace, as Paul Zoll calls it, is his one-way love toward us. That on your worst day, Jesus is crazy about you. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. That Jesus truly loves sinners. The love of God is the freedom of God to choose to love sinners in their sin. The holiness of God means he's not content to leave us there. So don't think I think that God just moves towards sinners in their sin and therefore just keep living as rebelliously as you want. Jesus has saved you from sin. All sin, past, present, and future has been dealt with on the cross of Calvary. And so for us to live as unredeemed sinners as followers of Jesus is going to short circuit our ability to sense his presence. It can't change the fact that you're forgiven, but it definitely can change your experience as you try to follow him. Because if you're still trying to be your own God, if you're still trying to do your own thing when Jesus is to be Lord, it's not surprising that so many Christians live such defeated lives. 
And learning to behold the king of love means that the purpose of the church is not for you to come and get what you need so that you can have personal growth in Jesus. Your personal growth in Christ flows out of your being poured out for him and his mission. His love comes to you only that it might work through you. It has never been intended for the church to be a place where you learn how to have your best life now. Your best life now is a life that is continually offered as a living sacrifice. Your best life is a life that is poured out for the good of others. That we allow ourselves to be brutalized, beaten, trod upon, if it means Jesus' name is lifted up. Because the thing that brings joy is when we know in the depths of our being that on our worst day we are loved. And if we know that about ourselves, how horrible we are and yet loved in spite of that, it should give us a a unique lens that allows us to see all people. I don't care who it is, we should be able to see all. It doesn't mean you're gonna like everybody. I have met plenty of people that are difficult to like, including myself. But, I, but it means that I am called to be a conduit of God's grace, to see people as truly image bearers of God and the ability to love others well, even those, and even maybe most importantly, those that we would consider our enemies. Isn't it funny that we often create enemies out of those that are out there somewhere in the world when the greatest enemies that we face are usually ourselves or even those within our community of faith, that the damage that often comes to the church is not from those people out there that are attacking us. The greatest damage that seems to happen in the church of God comes from within his own people. And it's when we diminish the beauty of Jesus, when we get caught up in the, in the new the new trends, the new social movements, and when those things become the supreme thing, naturally Jesus becomes an unwelcome guest in his own house. Because we can easily create for ourselves this sort of mentality. We have to protect ourselves from those people out there, whoever those people are, and it just doesn't work that way. Every person in this room will be a victim as well as a victimizer, and Jesus died for both. And the beauty of the gospel is that he, as the Father sent him to be what? A sacrifice for God so loved the world that he gave. And that giving is ascending, if you will. And that sending led to a once and for all death for humanity. That Jesus died. What did it cost the Father to have you as his child? It cost him his son. And what did it cost Jesus to have you as his bride? It cost him his life. The author of life gave up life. God died, was murdered so that you could live. The power of that is that when we behold the king of love, we see that the resurrection is not just about personal salvation, but it is about what God wants to do through us. And that is how we begin to experience his peace His peace, I believe, becomes more and more real only as we begin to live radically, outwardly for him and for his namesake. That we are willing to be hated because we want to be hated for the right things if we're going to be hated. Jesus says, if they hated me, they will hate you as well. I think often the world hates us for the wrong things. 
They hate us because they see the hypocrisy of us trying to be something that we can't be. They hate us because they see that we are embarrassed of the very God that we say we believe in. They hate us because they don't believe that we believe what we say we believe. Someone asked me recently in a podcast what I believe was the key to Luis Palau's success as an evangelist. And my response uh, to, to, this, uh, to this professor was, I believe Luis's greatest gift and what made him such a compelling communicator that led millions of people to a saving faith in Jesus. Why did Jesus use a man like Luis? Uh, is because Luis really believed that God loved him and that he loved every person that Luis met. And so Luis looked at the world with a singular eye, a place filled with people that Jesus loves and is not content to exist without. And so when he talked to you, you believed that he believed what he was saying. And that's quite compelling. When he was begging nurses the week of his death in hospice, barely able to breathe, a few days from passing, his family said that he still was saying to people that were coming to serve him in the, uh, the hospice care workers, he would say to them, come be in heaven with me. Not yet, darling, but in the future, come be in heaven with me. What a beautiful testimony to a man who cared nothing about his failing body, only that the souls before him would enter into the same rest that he was about to enter into. And I think that this is the beauty of, of one who is captivated by love, for only the love of Christ can compel us to live in the mission of Christ. It's God's new creative act, his great reclamation project, reclamation project that is even greater than creation itself because whereas we are wonderfully created, we are yet more wonderfully restored, said Fleming Rutledge. And if we are more wonderfully restored, should we not be a revelation of that restoration to a lost world? And that's why I ask the question, when people talk with you, when they experience you in your day-to-day -day life, do they sense something different? Do they sense a spirit about you that, that speaks to something that actually can't be explained tangibly. When I was in Russia on a mission trip, I remember a group of girls, Russian girls, were following uh, myself in, in, a, in a small group from America around, and I asked them, I said, why are you following us? And they said, because there's so much light in you. Do you think that we were aware of any light in us? No. All we were there to do was to tell people about Jesus. And the moment we entered into that mission, Jesus made himself supernaturally known through us because we were simply available and willing to step out, believing that God wanted to do something. We saw hundreds of people get saved that week. And it was so powerful. It was the first place I ever led someone to the Lord. It was in Russia. And I, I remember I was praying with three girls and I had a translator and she was translating the gospel for me. And I was new to the faith. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you the ends. I hadn't even read through the whole Bible yet. I just knew enough to share the Jesus. I'm like, all I know is I, I was lost. I got found. You should put your trust in Jesus. I don't know what that means totally yet, but I'm still figuring it out. But it's exciting stuff. And I remember I'm sharing the gospel and I'm just telling these girls that Jesus loves them. And all of a sudden, my translator stops translating and I look over and she's weeping. And then she and the, the three girls I was sharing with all prayed to receive Christ. And I was like, yeah, this is what I wanna do with my life. This is pretty cool. This is exciting. And that's when, it was in those moments where I'm like, Jesus, you are so real. I believe often the reason that Jesus is not that real to us 
is because we refuse to be the conduits that he calls us to be. And I think that if he can use a guy that barely got out of high school and, and had no college education and had only been saved for six months when that happened, he can use anyone. I am a reminder of God's willingness to use any foolish vessel that's willing to be used. And I think that this is the power. When I was just teaching at, at uh, Ecola Bible College two weeks ago, all these young students, I got this really sweet letter from, these, from, from a group of the students. And I was like, it's pretty funny that an accredited Bible college hired a guy without a college education to teach a college class. Um, and I don't know what that says about the intelligence of their organization. Uh, and when they asked me what my... What my, um, uh, what my accreditation was that, you know, they were, it, like the form asked me where I went to university and where I got my master's degree. I'm like, uh, I just said, I hired Tim Mackey. That was my response. <laughs> He's my friend. I have friends who have educations. Uh, and these kids gave me uh, this letter and at the end it was the one thing that I could only dream of getting and it just said, thank you, Josh, so much. You reminded us that Jesus really loves us and reminded us that we need to be a people that love him and love others. I don't know if I taught them anything about Galatians, but that fact that they got that, that's, that's all I could want. That's all I could hope. I want people to meet the living Christ when they meet with me, not because I'm special, because I'm willing to say I am a mess, but Jesus is still good. This is beholding the king of love. And finally, we must behold the king of life. In John chapter 20, verses 22 through 23, it says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Uh, don't be confused by that passage. That isn't that you and I have the power to stop people from being forgiven or give them access to being forgiven. This is a passage that's often used by the Catholic priesthood of why they have a priesthood of priests offering forgiveness or absolution. No, this is a picture of them being conduits of a gospel. Forgiveness was worked out on the cross of Calvary. As witnesses to the gospel of Jesus, the authority has been given to us as the church to be conduits of that gospel. We proclaim that gospel. And those that say yes to God's yes experience the forgiveness that is already theirs. But those who say no to God's yes over their, their lives remain in their brokenness. And so this is the reality is that we, are, we can't make people be saved. We can't argue people into the kingdom of God. We can only be heralds, proclaimers, witnesses in how we love, how we live, and how we speak. And faith comes by hearing. So don't think that your actions alone are going to lead people to Jesus. If someone sees something different in you, you better be ready to express to them what it is that's different. And Jesus tells us that we are to be witnesses to his, to his gospel, that we are to go into all the nations and make disciples, followers of him. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How shall they hear if there is no preacher to preach? And so it is, we preach, Paul says, that is the whole church declares that Jesus is Lord. We make him known by lifting up his name for there is no name under heaven by which one can be saved. And I promise you in Portland, it's a place that's hyper-spiritual in a secular age 
our worship and our gods are just different gods now. It's more, it's more um, horizontal than it is vertical. But we're, we're still a worshiping world and we still are a religious people. We just have replaced God with purpose, you know, purpose meaning ritual and community. And people find their ways of worship and a whole assortment of things uh, that has nothing to do with the one who can actually bring life. I love here because Jesus breathes on them and that takes us back to the garden. For Adam and Eve being made in the image of God, we're told that humanity, God breathed his life into them. And Jesus as the firstborn over a new creation is reenacting that special act, showing us this is what the gospel does is it brings new creation, new humanity, but it also speaks to the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that we are not left to our own devices and that if people are to experience God in our lives, they have to experience it in us as we are spirit-filled. And being spirit-filled is not getting more of the spirit, it is the spirit having more of you. It's about the spirit being the one who is leading and guiding. Christ's spirit within us, the Holy Spirit filling us and pointing the world to Jesus through us. And that spirit working in us and through us is what will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And here's the thing is that the conviction is not us going out and pointing at what's wrong with people. The conviction comes from shining the light of God's radical love upon the darkness of this world for it is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance. I am never compelled by a church that just sits around and beats the sheep and makes them feel bad for the sins that they commit. Jesus says a transformed life flows out of the fact that you are loved. When it's not until he, he tells the woman at the well that he has living water to give her, that he moves into the exposure of the things that's keeping her from that living water. But when he approaches her sin, it is because he is one who loves and like a good physician wants to remove the cancer from her life so that she can experience fullness of life. The power of Jesus with the prostitute who is to be stoned. He, he said, where are your accusers? And she said, they are gone. He says, neither do I accuse you. And it's after he has shown her grace because he was the one without sin who had the right to throw the stone, but instead showed us a different path toward tra a transforming act. And that transforming act was showing the radical love of God to one who deserve judgment from Jesus, but Jesus says, no, I take that judgment into myself. Go and sin no more. The call to a changed life flowed out of the recognition that I did not come here to condemn the world, but to save it. And I think when the church plays the condemning card, we do great damage to the name of Christ and to the gospel. Jesus is the king of life. He's the king of love. He is the king of peace. His peace, his love, his life can never be separated from him himself. His desire is to be in the midst of us as a community. His desire is to be in the midst of you as individuals so that you can become conduits of his grace to a lost world. If you don't know Jesus, know this, he loves you. He's crazy about you. There is nothing that you have ever done or can do that can stop the love of God. 
There is nothing that you can do that's gone, where you, you can't cross the line where you're unsavable because it is the one who recognizes that they are lost and broken and can't save themselves. You're exactly the person that Jesus came for. He didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. And friends, Door of Hope is a place of a lot of sick people. I look out, you guys look so sick. No, I'm just joking. You look beautiful, but our beauty flows out of our vulnerability, our brokenness before the cross. All we can give to Jesus is our dead bodies. But the beautiful news is that Jesus, as we celebrate resurrection, is in the business of bringing dead things to life. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your gospel. Thank you that you are our peace. Thank you that you are the source of our love and that you are our life. You said, I am the resurrection and the life. You said, I will not leave you orphans, but I will send another helper to you, the spirit of truth. And when he comes, he will guide you into all truth and he will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. My peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Jesus, you said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So, Lord, we turn to you in a time of restlessness, in in a time of what seems like great anxiety, in a time of much fear. I pray that we, as your church, would live in the shalom that you have made possible for us, that shalom is living life under the gracious care of you, Father, through the gift of your Son. Thank you that you refuse to exist without us. You don't need us, but you choose to pursue us in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our brokenness. And I pray that your kindness would lead us to repentance and that we would know, Jesus, beyond the shadow of a doubt that you are the Savior of the world that you lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, that you died the death that we deserved, that you rose from the dead on the third day, and that you ascended to the right hand of of the Father after showing yourself to your followers, and you sent your spirit on the day of Pentecost to indwell every man, woman, and child who has put their faith in you. Over the last 2,000 years, your story of grace is still being written, even in this moment, And so we just simply recognize that whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. And so we just simply cry out, Jesus, we are sinners. Forgive us of our sin. Fill us with your spirit. Come into our lives. Make us new creation. And we proclaim together, Jesus, you are Lord. Say, Jesus is Lord with me, church. Jesus is Lord. Say it one more time. Jesus is Lord. Amen.